Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Michelle Salzman for a conversation about what religion and worship was like before Christianity in Rome. Dr. Saltzman is professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Riverside, based in the U.S. She is a professor of Roman history with a specialization in late antiquity. She has written numerous publications over her career, including a couple books as examples. The first one, she's a co-translator and author of the commentary and introduction of the book, The Letters of Symmachus, Book 1, Writings from the Greco-Roman World 30. And she's also author of the forthcoming book, The Falls of Rome, Crises, Resilience, and Resurgence in Late Antiquity, which will be published by Cambridge University Press and is scheduled for release this summer. Welcome to the call, Michelle. Hello, happy to be here. So to put some initial dates and to create some context, Michelle, for the conversation, when is Christianity believed to have formed officially or if it's unofficial please cite it obviously in rome well there are uh from a roman perspective um tacitus's um annals and the description of nero's um scapegoating of christians um is the earliest reference to Christians in in Rome in the so around the time of the first century CE, middle of the first century CE, um, the degree to which Christianity had spread at that time is very disputed. The Christians were at that time also um, Jews, basically, and uh, the Romans saw them as a. Uh, a, a group, an offshoot of, of Jews in Rome, in which we know there were Jews in Rome from, oh, at least from the first century BC, probably earlier. So uh, the uh, official um, separation between Jews and Christians is another disputed argument about when it would happen. Some would put it as late as the second, third century. So, uh, so we know there were Christians in Rome in the first century. Uh, generally. Okay. There are lots of disputes about how they would see themselves, but the the Tacitus, and some people have even argued that Tacitus's citation under uh, Nero is uh, problematic, but um, I would say that's uh, that's a pretty good indicator that there were some Jews, some Christians in in Rome then, under Nero. It gives us a place to work work from in the conversation but um marking it um somewhere here to get get started so you mentioned that judaism um there's evidence that there were jewish people prior to the first century ce in in rome so can you share at a higher level what the religious and worship milieu would have been then in rome prior to the and maybe you know well uh, go, going back you know uh, to, to a certain point might just come up in our conversation we can figure figure that out probably as we go but prior to the first century ce 
Can you share what that religious milieu would have been like in, in Rome? Well, it was very diverse. Um, um, religion was part of social life to a large degree and political life. And it was very um, varied and, and localized. So uh, the, uh, and it continued to be that way. There were many different um, gods and goddesses um, connected with uh, the state. So uh, a lot of the of what we know about religion is connected with the state, the, the gods and goddesses that were supported by the, the state, whether as consuls in the Republic or magistrates or in the empire by the emperors. So, um, so in Rome in particular, the three gods, Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva, the Capitoline triad was supported with uh, appropriate um, temples and festivals um, and games. Um, so circus games were seen as manifestations of religious, um, the connection with religion in, in, the, in the Republic, certainly. And they became more political events later in the, in the later Republic. So uh, there was that. So I, I um, but there was also, you know, religion on an individual level. So there was religion in terms of your family, you know, your family gods and goddesses that you would worship in your house, the lares, the, the, uh, the spirits of the family. So there was also uh, on a personal level, you could be connected with, with a series of different gods. Um, religion was really very much a localized phenomenon, though. So if you, uh, you know, also, uh, if, you, um, if you were, for instance, connected with a particular trade, you might be particularly supportive of, uh, of the god or goddess who gives facility in that. So um, if you were... Uh, a weaver, you might be interested in Minerva, you know, the goddess of crafts. Uh, or if you were uh, a baker, you might be particularly connected with um, uh, um, some god, uh, patron deity that would, would help you uh, in baking. Uh, so, yeah, so they. What I often say is that religion in the ancient world really had a kind of functional principle. So there were always gods and goddesses for particular um, needs that you could turn to. Uh, and so depending on what your particular need was, uh, but then the state supported on its own level certain gods and goddesses to supply the needs of the people. So in the, uh, before the first century CE, um, there were and there, there were many gods and, and goddesses to which you could turn your attention, supported by the state. And then there were uh, new gods and goddesses who came into the Roman world. Um, sometimes they were not always welcomed. So Dionysus, um, Bacchus, famously in the second century CE, um, was very popular and um, the god of, of wine and um and um and having kind of ritual celebrations that involved women and men was something that certain Romans found suspect and so there was a famous pushback against them 
uh, in the second century BCE. Uh, and yet the cult continued, although with restrictions. Um, so the Roman state was, it's often said that it was in certain ways more tolerant, um, but tolerant within certain parameters. <laughs> uh, you know, they would become um, Romanized, as it were. So back worship continued, but in smaller groups, and there were sort of limits put upon how worshipers could meet. These different deities, and you mentioned some of them, and I'm sure there's 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 more. And I'll I'll probably ask what's known about the pantheon from from a more general perspective. But what's what's known about how some of these deities, like Jupiter and Juno, etc., came into existence in in this period of time to Romans? Uh, well, <laughs> um, I don't know if they came into existence, but they, they were around from, uh, you know, in the Mediterranean world, there were, um, there were gods and goddesses in Rome, um, in many ways, what's interesting is in the early and middle Republic, Romans encountered the Greeks, and there was a kind of, um, synthesis or fusion of many of the same gods. So Zeus in the Greek world is likened to um, Jupiter in the, uh, in the Italic, on the Italic Peninsula. Um, and Capitoline Jupiter in particular, Jupiter of the Capitoline Hill, the Capitol Hill becomes the most dominant god in the city of Rome as Rome becomes the most dominant city on the Italian Peninsula. And we're talking about centuries of change so there is a kind of fusion of certain attributes um, by the Romans over time. Um, similarly, um, uh, Juno, right, uh, or uh, Minerva, who is likened to Athena, although in the in the Italic world she's a goddess of um, weavers and skilled workmen, you know, in a much less so the goddess of war. Uh, so, but she becomes likened to Athena over time. So we're talking about a gradual, you know, centuries of sort of synthesis and familiarity. Um, it used to be said that the Romans never had images for their gods and goddesses, that they were just idealized forces, but I don't think that's, we can really say that with any confidence anymore. Okay. And for, yeah, for the, for the record, the, my, my term, the existence was metaphorical and uh, <laughs> a figure of speech. <laughs> I took it too, I'm too literal sometimes. <laughs> Although that would make for a very interesting um, episode if there was evidence of, uh, <laughs> of, of that. <laughs> yeah, it would be. <laughs> okay. Um, what do you, what are the major writers? Who are the major writers that scholars lean on? Is there two or three that scholars lean on to start to understand the, the Roman pantheon? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. That's part of the problem because a lot of the written evidence about gods right. and goddesses comes from texts that are much, much later. Uh, okay. Like... Um, well, uh, because Latin literature developed relatively late. So, uh, um, so often, uh, you know, uh, the scholar Barrow, for instance, 
wrote many works about literature. Vera was a first century writer um, living under Augustus, the Emperor Augustus. But he was a great scholar who collected things that we no longer have. And um, his works were used um, uh, on antiquity uh, about, um, about the gods, were used by Augustine yeah, on the city of God. And so, so several people had used Augustine's interpretation of Vera's works to get at what pre-Christian religion was like. Um, although, of course, it's been very deeply shaped by Augustine. Um, so that's one uh, source. But most of the writings about literature, as, as with most of Latin literature, comes from the first century BC or first century CE. Um, there are some non-literary texts. One of the, my first book was on um, a calendar. Um, and we do know that there were calendars um, connected with uh, Roman rituals. That's actually why I got an interest in calendars as a reflection of religious life. And so um, there were early Republican calendars, remains of and inscriptions, you know, uh, uh, that have come down to us. In fact, one of the earliest Republican calendars comes from the first century BC, and it it follows conventions and incorporates holidays that were celebrated much, much earlier. Um, and we, we get that when people talk about uh, their the past, as it were. So calendars are a terrific source of information for the way Roman religion was practiced on a daily basis. Right? Because one of the calendars, again, it goes back to Barrow, that first century scholar, um, his calendar was was very descriptive. So it said not simply April first, the day to is the day to Venus, but we should celebrate this with um, games or with a sacrifice. So, and that calendar was inscribed um, in a city not too far from Rome, Palestrina. Um, and so um, uh, it has been um, excavated, and and you can see it in a museum in Rome. The, uh, and so it gives us a lot of um, information about what people actually did, how they lived their religion. Um, so mm. inscriptions, um, some of them calendars, for instance, are very helpful in putting together, you know, what people actually did. Um, sacrifices are commemorated with inscriptions um, and uh, uh, that tell us about events that are commemorated. That's one. Um, you know, uh, you could turn to uh, one terrific source of information about gods and goddesses are the epic poems. You know, Virgil's mm-hmm. Aeneid and Ovid's Metamorphoses are filled with uh, stories about the gods and goddesses. In fact, Ovid's started writing, Ovid again, first century CE, wrote a long poem um, on the Roman calendar called the Fasti. Uh, and he uh, he went through every single day of the month talking about the holidays and the rituals. So Ovid's Fasti, which the first six books uh, months of the he wrote, and then he got tired or he got exiled. We're not quite sure why he never finished. But that's a terrific source of information about um, life uh, in Rome, in particular, uh, what people actually did. And that's a text, it's a didactic examiner, epic poem uh, that people have studied and, and often cite in these. Okay. How vast is the Roman 
pantheon in this period of time. Um, is there any sense of if if someone was to ask you, and I'll ask it as a question, how many de- de- deities um, is believed that uh, exist? You know, uh, not not to use that term literally, but but you know, existed in this in this period of time for for people. Any sense of the number of of deities? Well. <laughs> Depends. Um, Augustine makes really great fun of the fact that there are hundreds of gods and goddesses we know nothing about. Uh, like one of his favorites is Robigo, the god of rust. That you would worship him to make sure rust doesn't attack your crops. And, and then there's a door for. There's another god for opening doors and play and, and saying a prayer that you won't get hit by the door as you're opening it. And then there's another god that controls the door to make sure it doesn't hit you on the way back. So if you listen to Augustine, you think there are multitude you know, of gods and they're all goddesses and they're kind of ridiculous. That I think is uh, somewhat excessive, uh, but it is a little bit like uh, like saints in the modern you know, Roman Catholic Church, right? You, know, you have a saint, you have a god or goddess, whatever your needs are, doesn't mean you necessarily worship them or honor them every single year. Right? or every single day. So there are, um, the major gods and goddesses though are much more limited and those are the ones that um, have, I would say, staying power as it were, uh, and are able to, um, are embedded into the, the civic world, the public world. Um, and, and, that, and those would be more, I'd say like 15 or 20 maybe. Um, that are, you know, that we know are commemorated throughout the year as part of the sort of civic identity of Rome. So the Capitoline Triad, um, Mars, uh, Venus, um, and of course individuals make a difference in terms of which god or goddess becomes popular, right, at a particular moment, right? So Venus famously was supported or after or uh, was supported by Caesar. And so there was, when Caesar built his forum in Rome, the crowning monument in it was a temple to Venus, a victrix, yeah, Venus, the victorious one, um, uh, uh, originally, originally. So, so there was that, um, you know, individuals could um, support it, particularly their particular god or goddess. Um, uh, Augustus, when he became emperor, attributed his victory to Apollo at the Battle of Actium. And so there is uh, on the Palatine Hill where Augustus lived, uh, he also built a temple to Apollo and Apollo becomes part of the Roman world scene as it were. Um, although, uh, Although um, he is, uh, he gets a beautiful temple on Palatine Hill. Um, so, you know, there is, it's a very fluid and it, uh, so the, the public sphere um, also reflects political developments, uh, for sure. Uh, uh, but if you look uh, at the calendar from the, the sort of public calendar of the city of Rome, there are recurring, you know, recurring gods. I'd say um, one of the most interesting ones. I, I think I think that I've done work on is um, the sun god Sol, who is um, 
worship or connected with earliest Roman times, but it's in a very, um, uh, you know, agricultural way, and he's not really fully formulated. And he becomes increasingly uh, important uh, to the emperors as they as they're fighting in the east um, in the second and third centuries. And so solar worship becomes really a dominant um, uh, cult. Um, and by the end of the third century, the emperor Aurelian um, even puts in place new priests in Rome, a new priesthood to soul Invictus, the unconquered soul. And um, uh, the priests of soul come from the Senate, eventually come from very high senatorial elites even though worshipers of soul earlier before that had been Easterners in Rome or merchants or lower class peoples, so to speak. So you can see a real evolution, uh, you know, different manifestations of that cult um, being advanced at different times. So it's, it would be wrong to think that soul worship stayed the same throughout all of the you know, eight centuries that the city of Rome's misfunction, so to speak. So capturing those differences was really very um, uh, hard to find, hard to do, but, but they do tell us a lot about what's, what's become important to people. Hmm. As a scholar, how do you define what augury is? And as a scholar, do you consider that a form of religious practice? Oh, augury. Uh, well, it's, the Romans definitely thought it was, and I, I will take them at what they believe. Uh, you know, they didn't really have a word for religion the same way we do, right? Uh, religio doesn't really translate to religion it's in the same way at all. It's about um, connections being bound, being bound to something. Um, and um, the, the, what I would say the function of religion is about is to try to um, uh, often, I, I would say it's something along the lines of uh, do with this, right? I give so that you may give. So there's a sort of functional principle. There's a kind of, I'm giving to you something so that you may in return give me something. And from the Roman perspective, you want to know what the gods are thinking. And so augury, so looking at the flights of birds or most strangely to us looking at the insides of animals that have been sacrificed or a way of knowing what the gods want or what what's going to happen so that for them was connected uh, to this whole notion of i'm going to give you what you want and you're going to tell us what we need to do right? so augury was a way of understanding um, the world, you know, yeah, I have to realize you're in a world that has doesn't have scientific principles. <laughs> you know, when when it doesn't rain and you're a farmer, what do you do? You know, you can sacrifice, you could read the entrails of goats, you could hope to affect change in the universe in some way, and these ways were have been accepted by people around you. So yeah, so Augury was also a way of understanding what the divine uh, divinity was trying to tell you either to do or to not do <laughs> as the case may be. How prevalent would you say that worship was by, by Romans before Christianity? 
there any way to tackle that? Like prevalent as in, you know, if you if you looked at the population, the estimated percentage of people that were worshiping deities in some way. Um, you have it's it's um, I think it was all around you. Gods and goddesses were everywhere. There were statues of them in on in the temples, in the streets, in the baths, um, in people's houses. It, uh, how how much you personally were involved in religious action varied tremendously. You know, the, the notion that you had to do anything was not uh, a pre-Christian notion. Um, and even when there were Christians, you know, they were uh, in Rome, they were a minority of the population um, really until the fourth century. And even then, I, I would argue it's a gradual um, change. So the, the, the non-Christian religions really satisfied people's needs for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, and one of the, I think, straights of the system is that you didn't necessarily even have to do anything, even when there were holidays, as long as the priests or priestesses did the necessary actions to maintain good relations with the gods, you could stay home. You could, or you could go to the games, or you could do whatever you want. So there was tremendous variation. For instance, Caesar, who was elected to be the Pontifex Maximus, the head priest, was famously skeptical about the gods. But he wanted to have that position because it gave him great political and religious authority. Um, how did he believe in the gods? Famously, he was a skeptic. Um, but I, I think, you know, the, 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 there were not many atheists around. Uh, not many who would say there were no gods. I think, you know, the was even if you didn't think the gods made much of a difference, right? So Lucretius, for instance, would argue that there were gods and goddesses, but they didn't do much. They didn't intervene in your life, but he didn't say they didn't exist. Um, and so there were some uh, who, who, who did perhaps believe that, but a, a, a rare percentage. That said, you know, when you say religious, we have this notion of, you know, going to church or, you know, being or going to a synagogue or a mosque or, you know, being very actively engaged. You didn't necessarily have to do that uh, to, um, um, and then again, there's also, as I was mentioning, in your family life, there were uh, the Lares, the gods of, uh, and the Panates, the gods of your household that you would want to maintain. Um, connection with and um, offer incense burnings to, you know, that is uh, a form of religion that, that isn't often um, emphasized, but it was probably very prevalent. You know, like in the movie Gladiator, when he carries around those little, <laughs> uh, little doll-like figures, those are his household gods and goddesses, and that probably was pretty typical. I think that, that, that part, I think, is right. Um, and when you mention Caesar, are you referencing Octavian in that case? Oh, yeah, Julius Caesar. Oh, Julius Caesar, of course. Julius okay. Caesar, sorry. No, that's completely fine. Yeah, I wanted yeah. To, to get the, uh, to, know, to know the person you're referencing. Okay, um, so, so you mentioned uh, Julius Caesar. It sounded like he, he was skeptical 
um, using using that term. But then in other things you're describing, it sounds like there is a lot of um, a lot of people had belief systems and they 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 performed worship around various deities. So so did so did you find anything in the evidence about what the various emperors if you're able to summarize what the what the emperor's relationship to um and even consuls if you want to bring in different consuls if we're talking more the republic period but is there any sense of the people ruling rome at the given time what their relationship was to to the concept of religion or 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 worship oh oh yeah no i think they were very fundamental especially the emperors i mean the 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 consuls were not really the sort of religious figures so much as were the uh, priests um, and um, and the Pontifex Maximus, the head priest uh, of the of the cults in Rome and the Republic. So in in the empire, um, really. Uh, Augustus takes up the mantle of Pontifex Maximus, head priest, um, following in the footsteps of his adopted father, Julius Caesar. And every emperor after that, down until uh, the Emperor Gratian, uh, will have uh, that particular name. Um, and in that light, will see himself or will want to be seen as really being responsible for maintaining the goodwill of the gods, you know, in Latin, the Pax Deorum. And it's the role of the emperors in particular to keep the gods happy. And what would that mean? I mean, giving the gods or particular gods um, that they see as uh, important for maintaining Rome, um, giving them the appropriate festivals and rituals and celebrations. And certain emperors felt more connected to certain gods than other emperors. And so they would, uh, they often would also see themselves as being under the divine favor of a particular god or goddess. So I already mentioned Augustus, when he claimed his victory um, under Apollo. So, so he saw it as his role to bring Apollo to, uh, to bring a particular version of Apollo to Rome and to honor him um, in exchange for his military victory. And that was very often the way cults were connected. Um, or the emperor um, Hadrian, uh, um, who, who was very interested in religion all across the empire. Uh, when he comes back to Rome, he builds or puts together a new cult, a new version of Venus, uh, and a huge temple to Venus in Rome, uh, in the Roman Forum, um, and a new cult to eternal Rome, the goddess Rome. Um, and so there is this very strong emphasis on Venus and Roma, or Rome as a patron goddess, by Hadrian, who is very interested in these particular ideas. So 
um, and who sees his role really as you know promulgating her 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 uh, honoring her um, and because that's what will give him um, great support uh, to the and to some degree uh, you know and he have game we have new festivals for her so it really um, is a way for an emperor to connect with his people you know coins which will show this particular god and goddess on one side and Hadrian on the other um, or a way of advertising across the empire look at you know I've got the support of Venus and eternal Rome and I'm the emperor right? so there are many facets to that um, to the sort of the ways in which religion becomes um, part of uh, an emperor's identity, for better or for worse. <laughs> we know about some emperors who went a little bit too far, and they get sort of um, criticized for them, uh, for it. So, uh, in the third century, one of the seven emperors, Elagabalus, was in fact uh, connected with a particular version of solar worship, Sol Elagabal. Uh, he came from it came from Syria. The Severan dynasty was connected with Syria. They wanted to, um, um, uh, in fact, uh, Septimius Severus's uh, wife was um, an eminent from an eminent priestly family in Syria. So they so they uh, this uh, emperor who uh, went quite too far. He was quite effeminate. He had different kinds of worship. He was mocked by later writers, but. He clearly was trying to connect with a particular version of solo worship, um, so that um, that he thought would bring support to him and divine favor. Uh, it failed. He was removed from office, but um, it, it could, so it can work both ways. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, this is the way religious change often happens. Because, for instance, oh, um, ISIS worship. Um, the goddess Isis, who comes from Egypt, she was, um, you know, seen as somewhat suspect, but there were certain emperors that supported her, um, Domitian, for instance, uh, the Flavian dynasty. Uh, uh, so her worship, which was at first seen as somewhat suspect, Egyptian, strange, she's, you know, uh, she's got this this son Horace and strange ways, um, and so. Um, but over time, and with the support of Domitian, um, in particular, uh, her worship gets deeply embedded into the Roman state. And by the fourth century, she's a very popular goddess um, that we can see in, in Rome. You mentioned there there was a head priest, and you mentioned various. Um, emperors who held that position in the past, and it sounds like they had a specific term for it. Did they? Did did Romans in this period of time have a term for the religion or the form of worship itself? Well, they would call it, I guess, cultus, cult, cult right? Cultus. Um, so, sometimes uh, Cicero has used the plural religionis, religions. Um, uh, the, they would, uh, um, think about, um, uh, veneration or honor, um, Christians might use the word religio, but, uh, it's, it's, um, they would focus to a large degree on, um, the actions 
you know, the kind of the, the actions, the rituals that you would perform, which is one of the reasons why earlier on scholars um, have argued that, you know, Roman religion was only about ritual and that there, were never, that there was not belief, that, that it was just the correct performance of ritual. But that's really um, a view that is... Um, that has fallen away because uh, with a sort of more understanding that the performance is carries the meaning. Uh, and so there isn't this you know, separation between the two. Uh, so, um, yeah. Um, so it's, the terminology would be, uh, there is the word religio, but it, and it can sometimes be used to what to to apply to venerating a, a god or goddess or, or being connected to, bound to, but it doesn't have the same sort of institutionalized focus that we think about when we call when we when we use the word religio or religion. Sorry. Yeah. So they they could use it, but they would. There was a whole series of words like cultus right? um, or. Uh, no, honor or the actions. Okay, and that's a segue because I think you mentioned um, the level of organized, and I was actually going to ask about that because if if uh, emperors are being you know entitled you know, titled a, a head priest again, yet it, you had a a term term for it, but I'm using the term head head priest. Um, there had to have been some level of organization. So, how would you describe the level of organization in this period? Of, period of time and were there people that um it was their vocation to carry out certain administrative um rituals um and this might be anachronistic but lit liturgy what was there were there people that uh saw this as their vocation in this period of time as well Right. so I, I'm, I'm focusing mostly on the uh, empire but um but but i but um, most of the priests, even the term of head priest or pontifex maximus, the biggest priest, literally maximus, um, uh, this wasn't a full-time job. <laughs> you, both, you mostly, you know, in fact, when Caesar took it on and when the emperors took it on, it was a title. It meant that you could um, uh, uh, approve or or recommend members who would be priests for particular gods and goddesses. So there were different priestly organizations, what the Romans called colleges or collegia, or colleges that, that would meet, that would be responsible for worshiping or, or taking care of the worship for a particular cult and maintaining that um, god or goddesses temple and rituals. Um, but this was not usually, no, not a full-time uh, um, job. Um, uh, and so um, so even to give you uh, an example, someone who was a, involved in uh, the cult of um, oh, you know, uh, Saturn, right? There was a cult of Saturn in Rome, uh, Saturnus um, and the, the Saturnalia, you know, the big holiday in December, right? Um, and there might be priests connected with him, but they didn't, they, they, they met perhaps irregularly, but they, they didn't meet all the time and they didn't have duties all the time. Um, 
or uh, although some foreign cults came in with priests who were not Roman, um, and they seem to have been more um, engaged, as it were, uh, you know, more uh, busier or, or more devoted to their particular cult. Um, and thinking about the cult of Cabele or the great mother who came from Asia Minor and was uh, transported to Rome as a as a uh, a black stone, so as it goes, and then um, located on the Palatine Hill again with a temple to the great mother. Uh, when she came, she uh, there were priests um, of Eastern origin who practiced ritualized castration, and the Romans thought that was um, not something a Roman should do. So her priests, who were generally thought of as more full-time, more full-time like uh, jobs as it were, um, they were they were not usually um, uh, they were not usually Romans, but there were Romans who served her and they didn't do it on a full-time basis as far as we know. So yeah. Okay. Closing question, Michelle. How did it change over time then? So we when we kind of work our way through the uh, through the period and to act as a closing question. How did how did this uh, the the uh, religious and 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 various worship change in uh, pre Christian Rome? That's a great sixty four thousand dollar question. <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, you really want me to answer that in uh, the closing? <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> save save the easiest question for last. <laughs> In, the, in in Rome, I, I think that there is there is no one religion that became dominant. I think, and so, oh, you know what 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 people expected from religion, I think, did change over time, and I'm thinking in particular of attempts by the Roman uh, state to have everybody sacrifice. In the middle of the third century, famously, Decius suggested that everybody sacrifice in order to make sure that the state would survive. It was the, there was a plague, there were military problems. And so uh, we have these uh, libelli, these little books of where people vouch that, yes, I've sacrificed. And, and so the attempt to make everybody uniformly do the same thing um, seems to me a radical shift in the way what you're expecting from um, from religion that it becomes really a way to unify everybody, uh, and then we can see this cropping up again in the third century, leading famously to you know outbursts uh, of Christians. Um, but I think it, it comes along with. Um, this uh, changing idea about what um, what uh, what the state can do in terms of building on um, religion religion and what people can expect from the gods, as it were, uh, that the state can do for you. Um, so, so I think there is a change. How you get to that change is very hard to to say because uh, uh, we don't have such um, we don't have the, the we don't have people just talking about religion quite in the same way we talk about religion. Um, so it, that's mm. part of the challenge of working on um, ancient Roman religion in particular. Is that 
people don't often talk about the, it the way that we want. They describe what they're doing, but they don't talk about the meanings. So, so, so that I think that would be my that's my suspicion about the greatest change, and it connects with when Constantine comes and the notion of um, you know of Christian his support for Christianity as well becomes part of this is part of this sea change in the way in what people expect about religion and its connection to them. Okay. And you have a forthcoming book, The Falls of Rome, Crises, Resilience, and Resurgence in Late Antiquity. What about this topic? Did you feel there was, there was more work to do and that you felt that you could contribute more to the scholarly conversation? Um, well, I was very frustrated because of the emphasis on the the, um, the pre-existing way of explaining what happens in Constantine and after in Rome, which has tended to focus on either the, broadly speaking, the decline and fall paradigm um, versus um, um, sort of the transformation paradigm. And I thought there, you know, that is those are both too limited to get at the the creative resilience of various institutions and people who lived um, from the fourth through the seventh century, and I'm particularly um, interested in that book in the interaction between the Senate as an institution, the senatorial aristocrats, um, and the bishop and the, the church. Um, so. I focus really on how the Senate and central aristocrats become um, increasingly powerful in this world, taking advantage of crises. And although the bishops are, are emerged, um, I think that their emergence as civic leaders is far slower than people have um, suggested. So we're talking about you know centuries of change um, and a delicate balance between different um, competing political groups. Okay. Are you excited that the book's coming out soon? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's coming out again, everybody, this summer. Um, and I will, uh, I'll do the regular outro in a moment. But thank you, Michelle, for coming on the show and talking about this topic today. Mm, thank you for your questions. It was fascinating. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode, The Letters of Symmachus, book one, Writings from the Greco-Roman World 30, and the forthcoming book that we just had uh, some dialogue about there, The Falls of Rome, Crises, Resilience, and Resurgence in Late Antiquity. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Michelle and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.